following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So right about this time of year, there is a phenomenon that is just intriguing to me. Um, It is the day after Thanksgiving, some call it Black Friday, it is a shopping uh, frenzy, there's, there's one of the biggest shopping days of the year, there's all these incredible deals, I want just a show of hands, I want to know who the Black Friday warriors are, I mean, come on, be brave, show us who you are, okay, some of you, you, you get your comfortable shoes on at 4am, you've already got a gallon of coffee in your system, okay, you have your face smashed against the window from the crowds behind you. Okay, I, there is an urgency, and, and, and most of us are just trying to take advantage of there, there's a once-a-year deals that, um, that you can get around this time. And, and really, for most people, it's just you want to get a good gift for someone you love and take advantage of, of the opportunities at this time of year. But there is some in our culture that... that Take this to another level. In fact, this has become, Black Friday has become a phenomenon that's global. You might not be aware, but Black Friday, there is a Black Friday push in places like England, South Africa. And remember that they don't celebrate Thanksgiving, they just have a Black Friday. Okay, there is a global push now for Black Friday. And so this year, there was something, this is always just kind of fascinates me, but this year something caught my attention, is the number of outlets who were giving out like a top 10 list of tips for surviving and excelling at Black Friday. Okay, things like this, like go to the store a couple days ahead of time to scout it out and to map out your plan your entrance and exit strategy, you know, much like you do if you're doing like a bank heist, okay? You kind of scope it out ahead of time. One person says, you know, be careful of the accessories you bring with you. You know, bringing that coffee, that thermos of coffee may sound like a good idea, but at one point you're going to be running full speed and you're going to throw that over your shoulder, leaving things behind. Okay, it warns about things like that. But I came across this one tip and it kind of got my attention, and it maybe shows that there are some that take Black Friday a little too far. It was um, Forbes had a, a list of 10 tips. This, I think, was number seven. And I just, I'm going to read this tip to you and just tell me if this hits you a little strange, okay? It says this. I'm just going to read it. Leave children at home. Not only will they slow you down, but they could be kidnapped in a crowded environment. Oh, wait, let me see if I understand this. Okay. Don't bring your children when you go shopping at Black Friday because they will slow you down. And by the way, they might get kidnapped too, and you don't want that. Okay. Something a little off. All right, so it goes on, it continues, and it's going to say, here's what you do like if you can't leave your children at home, like if you don't feel comfortable leaving your little ones alone in the house with just a pile of food to fend for themselves, okay? That makes you feel guilty or something. Okay, here's what they recommend. If you must bring children, make sure they know their address and phone number and put that information in their pockets before shopping. Okay, so let me see if I understand. Okay, 
If you can't leave your children at home, I'm expecting like, do some online, online shopping, okay? Don't just leave your children home. What they recommend is bring your children with you, just make sure they're ready for the inevitable kidnapping <laughs> that is going to happen. Okay, so maybe there are some in our culture that take Black Friday a little too far, but what we know is that this is a time where there's incredible opportunities and there's this sense of urgency to take advantage of the opportunities that come in only this little window every year. And, and what if I were to tell you that there's an opportunity at this time of year that if we could just, if we could just remove the blinders, if we could just see reality, it would create this level of urgency that would make the most crazed Black Friday mob look tame. Like if we could just understand this one particular opportunity that we have, it would just send this urgency boiling through us at a degree I don't know that we're prepared for. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning and we're going to look at a passage as we're wrapping up this Love South Florida series and talking about the love that God is calling us to have for our community, for our city. We're going to look at this passage in the book of Jonah. If you would open, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you would open to the book of Jonah, and I want you to go to Jonah chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I'm going to give us just a little background about Jonah in case you're a little hazy on the Jonah story. I want to give you the background of, of what this story is all about. So I'm going to stay in Jonah 4, but I'm just going to briefly read a couple verses out of Jonah chapter 1. Here's what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now here's the story. Jonah is living in Israel. God is saying, I want you to be my prophet. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Nineveh. And he calls it that great city. That's God's words. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city. Interestingly, throughout the book of Jonah, you're gonna, if we read all the way through it, you'd see that God repeatedly refers to Nineveh as that great city. In fact, at one point in chapter 3, God says that exceedingly great city. He calls it the great city. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city, and, and their evil has come up before me, and I want you to tell, preach on my behalf. I want you to call them out on the evil that they are doing. Okay, now what does Jonah do? He does not go to Nineveh. He goes down to a city called Joppa. It's a port city. He gets on a boat and he sails to Tarshish. Now it says Tarshish three times in one verse for reason. Tarshish is in the exact opposite direction. In the known world at that time, that's pretty much poles. Nineveh to the east, Tarshish to the west. He sails to Tarshish. Now you might be tempted to be like Jonah. Come on, man. When God specifically, directly is going to tell you something, it's bad news to disobey and go the opposite direction. And if you know the story, it's not going to go well for Jonah. But before we are tempted to kind of throw that judgment on him, here's what he's probably thinking. 
The city of Nineveh, when God says that evil is coming up to him, that's kind of an understatement because of how notorious Nineveh was. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, kind of the superpower of the day, and the Assyrians were notorious for their brutal treatment of people they captured. Now let me just make this PG-13 for a second. What they would do if they were attacking and sieging a city, if the city resisted, this is what the Assyrians would do, they, once they captured it, they would so brutally torture the people, like dismember the people, in such a shocking fashion, so that the news would spread, and when they'd go to the next city, they would just give up and not even fight. And it's actually really pragmatic of the Syrians. They're just trying to not have to expend Assyrian life in a battle. They just want to shock people by their grisly torture. They do shocking people into submission. In fact, Assyrian kings, you can read historically, they would try and outdo each other with their, own, with their grisly violence. They would brag about it. It was a badge of honor. So when God says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and say, hey, you guys are evil. You can imagine Jonah's not too excited about that mission. He goes down to, goes to Joppa instead, goes the opposite direction. If you know anything about the story of Jonah, you know a big storm comes up. The boat's about to break apart. Jonah realizes it's because God's punishing him, and he talks the sailors into throwing him overboard. He gets thrown overboard. The, the book of Jonah says a great fish swallows him. We know it as Jonah and the whale. The Bible says a great fish swallowed him whole, and he stayed alive in the belly of the fish. He did some business with God, as I'm sure you can imagine. Then he gets vomited up on the dry land and goes to Nineveh. Now, the book of Jonah is not nonchalant about the fact that a great fish just swallowed a man and the man is alive. It's saying, yeah, I know it's crazy. That's why I'm telling you this story. It's not saying this happens all the time to humans. It happened the one time that God miraculously had a fish swallow a guy and spit him up on dry land and and live. Jonah goes up, preaches to Nineveh, And what we learn is the Ninevites hear Jonah's words and city-wide, it says they turn from their evil and they turn to God and they are broken and convicted and praying and, and begging God for mercy. Now here's what happens next. I'm gonna start in chapter three, verse 10 and go into chapter four. This is what it says. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and did not do it. Chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. All right, now here's, this is where this book of Jonah gets really interesting. You thought the whale was interesting. The story actually gets interesting here. Here's what's funny about this story. Typically, when we tell the story or hear the story, we go up through chapter 3. And we end with, Jonah goes into Nineveh, he preaches, and they all turn to God, and God decides he's not going to punish them. And we say, end of story. But we forget about the last chapter. It's the forgotten chapter. And it is actually the crescendo of the whole book. It's actually the whole point of the story of Jonah. And there's a play on words in the original ancient Hebrew that, we've tr- that um, has been translated directly into the English here. In the original ancient Hebrew, you can see this play on words between the last verse in chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4. It says it literally like this. The people of Nineveh turn from their evil. God decides not to allow evil to happen as a punishment. 
and it was evil to Jonah. That's literally how it's put. And it's setting the stage for chapter 4. There are two parties of these three parties, the Ninevites, God, and Jonah. There's two that are disassociating from evil. The Ninevites are turning from their evil. God is relenting from the evil he was going to allow. And it is evil to Jonah. There are two that are disassociated from evil, but there's one who's associated with it. And the surprise to this story is it's Jonah. This is what that means. Let's look what happens next. Chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Those are some strong words. Do you realize what he just said? can't believe it, God. I knew you would do this. I knew it. He said, this is why I ran to Tarshish. Do you realize what, he's re- what it's revealing? It waits till chapter 4 to reveal his true motive. It's not that he's afraid. It's not that he's afraid of the Ninevites and what they're going to do to him. He was afraid God would have mercy on them. He's like, I knew this. I knew you would do this. I knew you were gracious, you were merciful, you were abounding in love, slow to anger, full of grace and mercy. I knew you are the type of God that the people farthest from you, you forgive them on the spot and draw them back. I knew you would do this. That's why I didn't want to go. I didn't want any part of it. I ran the other direction. And he's so mad that he says, Kill me now. I knew you'd do this. Um, let's see what happens next. Let's keep going. Chapter 4, verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city? Now watch this. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. It's been a rough couple days for Jonah here. Okay, he starts out, Mad that God has mercy on the Ninevites. Goes and he sits up on the hill and he's watching the city to see what's going to happen. I think he's still holding out hope that God might somehow destroy the Ninevites. Sitting up, he's built this little shanty and it says, 
God appointed, he's probably in this desert region, he's in a, he's, it's a desert area, he's the scorching heat, he builds a shanty, and it says overnight God causes a plant to grow. This is another miracle that God does. He causes a plant overnight to grow in its shade. And it says that Jonah is exceedingly glad about the plant. Same word it was used for him being exceedingly angry about God's mercy on the Ninevites. Now he's exceedingly glad about the plant. The next day, God sends a worm, eats the plant, and then a scorching wind comes, the sun beats down, and now Jonah is back to the place of, that's it, kill me now, I can't take this anymore. Now, okay, you kind of want to be like, Jonah, dude, it's a plant, man. Just kind of like calm down a little bit. Don't get so excited about this plant. Okay, but, you know, we can get upset about little things too sometimes, okay? Let's have a a conversation about Thanksgiving dinner for a second, okay? Some of you in your homes, you have um, turkey and mashed potatoes. Some of you do fried turkey. Any fried turkey people out there? Some fried turkey. Some do lechon. Any lechon? Have you lechon Thanksgiving? Anyone have turkey and lechon? I'd like to see those hands and you're willing to invite me next Thanksgiving. Thank you. I saw that. Appreciate the invite. Um, so we have all these different things. And have you ever had that one thing that you are like, this is like this is the thing I look for at Thanksgiving. This one dish. And have you ever had the year where they mess with it? Like, don't be messing with that dish. Oh yeah, Aunt Edna's making the mashed potatoes this year. What? I don't want Aunt Edna's mashed potatoes. Okay, that's no good. Okay, for me, um, there, there, it's a pie situation for me at Thanksgiving. There are a number of pies that are good at Thanksgiving time, okay? There's pumpkin pie, okay? Some like pumpkin pie. Um, there's apple pie. Some people make fancy apple pie, like the one that's just made out of crackers, which I don't know how that like, defies the laws of physics in my mind. But some make that apple pie, but there's one pie that rules them all. It is the king pie at Thanksgiving. It's pecan pie, naturally, right? Anybody? Somebody, thank you. Okay, all right, just making sure you're with me. Pecan pie, it's the pie. Okay, I'm not offering an opinion. Okay, I'm speaking truth to you. My role as a pastor and a shepherd is to expose you to the truth. Okay, pecan pie, it is the best pie at Thanksgiving. All right, now if, we, if I get the end of Thanksgiving dinner, there's no pecan pie left. Okay, I'm pretty upset. Okay, I'm exceedingly angry about the lack of pecan pie left at the table. All right, if we're honest... Um, we've been where Jonah is. It seems like he's making a really big deal about this plant. But we get pretty worked up over little things too. Okay, now what is God doing? Is God just sitting back like, man, this Jonah guy, I'm going to really mess with him. I'm going to take him on this roller coaster of emotions. I'm going to do this whole plant thing and then a worm. I mean, what is, what's God doing here? God has miraculously sent this plant worm situation into his life over the course of about 48 hours He sent that in to expose something in Jonah's heart. He's exposing something to him and to the reader. If you notice, they're like parallel. He's exceedingly angry about Nineveh. He says, I'm ready to die. And God says the same thing. Do you do well to be angry about the Ninevites? Like, is that a good thing for you to be angry about? Like, do you have any right to be angry And then the whole plant thing happens. It says, again, he's exceedingly happy about the plant. The plant dies. He's upset. Take my life. He's ready to go. And God says, do you do well? Same thing, to be angry about the plant. He's putting them next to each other to show Jonah something about his heart. 
Let's see how the book of Jonah ends. Last two verses of the entire book. It says this, Jonah 4, verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons which do not know their right hand from their left and so much cattle? That's the end. Ends on a question. Interesting, it ends on this question. It's provocative, makes us think. And here's what he says. He says, Jonah, you're worked up. You have exceeding emotions about a plant. It rose up in a day and it was gone the next. I think that's probably why God did the miracle of making this plant grow so fast and then die within a day. He's showing him how small that is that gets him exceeding emotions out of Jonah. He says, should I not have exceeding emotions about Nineveh, this great city? He says there's 120,000 people in there. Now, we measure great cities in our day in the millions. But in this time, uh, this part of the Iron Age uh, that this book was written, large cities were measured in the tens of thousands. A very large city would be seventy-five to 80,000 people. Only a few countries in the world, they estimate, had cracked 100,000 at this point in time. That means Nineveh is probably one of the largest cities in the world. God is saying it's teeming with life. I love that he throws the cattle in there too. He says, this thing is just, it's teeming with life, this city. He says, you're upset about a plant. Should I not be upset about the state of this city with, that's just filled with life? And what he's exposing to Jonah is the real reason why he was mad that God had mercy on Nineveh. Why did God send the plant to Jonah? It says, he sent him a plant to save him, to rescue him from his discomfort. So here's what you feel exceeding emotions about, Jonah. You get exceedingly angry about some things. You get exceedingly glad about other things. He says, what you feel exceeding about is Jonah. Jonah. He says, you feel exceedingly about your own discomfort. I expose that to you by sending a plant. And you're like, oh, this feels good. And then it died and you're mad again. I sent that into your life. He says, to expose to you, Jonah, that you care the most about you. You care about your comfort. He says, if it goes against your feelings and you have to go out of your way to go to Nineveh and you have to preach against a place, he says that you have actually prejudice against. You don't want them to turn to me. You don't want me to have mercy on them. You are comfortable with you, Jonah. You are, you are comfortable in your environment. He says, that's what you care about. So you care about something like a plant that's here one day and gone the next. It's it. It's worthless. It's a plant. He says, and I think he's pointing that out because he's saying 120,000 souls in Nineveh, each will have an eternal destiny. And it ends with this question, the book of Jonah. That's the crescendo, chapter 4. And it ends with this question because it's asking the reader It ends with God saying, should I not have passion, feel mercy, 
for this exceedingly great city? Should I not have exceeding emotions about this city, Nineveh? And it's leaving with lingering questions, so the reader has to confront each of us individually ourselves and ask, do I have the heart of Jonah or do I have the heart of God? Do I have these exceeding emotions about the little things that affect my discomfort? Or do I take the blinders off and realize, oh my goodness, I'm set in an environment here, in a community, in a region, in a city that has souls that have an eternal destiny. That's the heart of God. Is that my heart? Do I have exceeding emotions about my discomfort or do I have exceeding emotions for the city that I've been placed in? For the lost in the city that I've been placed in. You know, there are emotions, like the holidays can get emotional. And we can get, uh, in, in different places, we can get our emotions can get fired up. What fires up my emotions? Is it something small? Like where the family dinner is hosted and who's coming into town and when and schedules and, and this and that and what I'm giving as a present, what I'm getting as a present. Are these little things that are here today, gone tomorrow, is that what draws out exceeding emotions or is it the exceeding greatness of the life of the city that I've been placed in? You know, the, the city of Nineveh has 120,000 people. I wonder how God feels about South Florida that literally has 50 times that number of people. What are his emotions about South Florida? You know, there's an unbelievable opportunity in this season. No other year is it like what's going to happen in the next couple weeks in our culture. There's an opportunity that we really don't ever get like in this season leading up to the Christmas season, leading up to Christmas itself where our culture is open like no other time, open and curious and willing to come to church where they will hear the message of God's love and his grace. They will hear that he is a God of mercy and patience and grace, a God that draws near to those who are the farthest. And in a time when our culture, they think what we're doing here is just perpetuating religion, and this is a time where they're open to coming to church and hearing that there is a message that it's not about religion. It's not about God saying, clean up your life and then I'll accept you in. It's God saying, I will ex- just turn to me and I will accept you right where you're at because I'm a God of mercy and love. There is no other time of year that we have an opportunity like that. If we could realize the opportunity we have in front of us right now in the next couple weeks, if the blinders could be off and we realize eternity is at stake for millions of souls, we would be more urgent about that than anything else and we would say, I will stop at nothing to take advantage of that opportunity. You know, I heard some statistics recently about part of South Florida. We'll just talk about um, Miami-Dade for a second, just uh, that part of South Florida. I heard a statistic, and, and some say that county, Miami-Dade, is the second most unchurched county in the United States. There, there's varying statistics about the number of evangelicals in, in, um, Dade, in Dade County. 
What do you mean by evangelicals? Is that a denomination? No, that's actually an umbrella term, interdenominational, but it's for Christians that agree on the basic tenets of the gospel, like the basic truths about how someone is saved. And one statistic had it, one study had it as low as only 4% of Dade County is evangelical. Let me put that in perspective. We do some overseas uh, missions as a church, and we were very active, have a heart for places like Burkina Faso, Africa, the country of Haiti, the country of Guatemala, and we do um, bring relief work there. We, take the, we help the gospel efforts there. If that statistic is even close to true, that there's only 4% evangelical in Miami-Dade, if that's even close to true, that means that there is a higher percentage of evangelicals in the country of Burkina Faso, in the country of Haiti, and in the country of Guatemala than in Miami-Dade County. That means there's a higher percentage of evangelical, evangelicals in China than there are in Miami-Dade County. Do you realize where he has placed you? You may say, yes, I, well, I, I'm here, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a Christian police officer or teacher or firefighter or, or sales associate or business owner, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, um, in, 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 and I do those things, that's my job. Well, actually, more accurately, you're a Christian missionary, that's actually who you are, into this lost city, you are a Christian missionary there, and you just so happen to have that job as the environment in which you're to take the message of the gospel in. You say, well, tell me what to do. What do I do to achieve this mission? I am not good with this. I don't know how to do that. Let me read you another statistic that I heard. It says this, 82% of what they call unchurched people, 82% of unchurched people would attend your church if a trusted friend asked them. However, it says, only 2% of church members have invited someone in the last year. 82% would say, yeah, I'll go, if someone invited them. I just want to give you one simple step. And I say it's simple, not that it's simple, but and it doesn't really make a big impact. A simple step that makes profound impact. When you invite someone in this season where our culture is ripe, the soil is tilled for that kind of invitation. When you invite someone to come to church, what you're doing is you're bringing them into an environment where the gospel is being preached. And for the first time, they may hear the fact that, wait, God is accepting me right where I am, but he's not going to leave me right where I am. He wants to go to work in my life. And and Jesus died for me. It's a free gift salvation. People are prepared more than ever to hear that message. And when you invite them, God is going to go ahead of you and before you because he has a heart broken for this city. And we want to say, what is my heart for? Is it for my own comfort or is it for this city? Um, What our goal is this year is we want to send our church out into our communities, into our neighborhoods, our friend groups, our places of work, to be an army to invite into church like we've never unleashed into South Florida ever before. We want this to be the biggest push we've ever done. And so here are a couple things to be prepared for. Starting next week, when you come in, you'll see a stack of Christmas invite cards on these chairs. Here's what the challenge is. Take these invite cards, put them in your wallet, put them in your car, put them on your desk, put them in your purse, take them with you and pray for an opportunity to invite someone to come with you. God is going ahead of you, already preparing that person to respond. You say, look, I'm not a very outgoing person. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to give someone an invite card. Here's one simple way. You simply say, hey, what's going on? What are your plans for Christmas? What are your plans for the holidays? 
well, here's what I've got going. I've got the family all coming over on uh, Christmas Eve, and we've got this going on, and I'm, we're going there and traveling here. And then they say, what about you? And then you say, yep, we've got our family getting together here. And then one thing, my family's really involved in what's going on at my church. We're doing this, this big thing. You tell them a little about it, and then you just simply say, hey, we'd love for, you can totally come. We'd love for you to come with us sometime. Would you ever be interested in coming? Oh, well, I'd have to look. Let me just think about it. You say, well, here, just take this invite card. You think about it. If you're available, we'd love to have you. A couple weeks later, a couple days later, before the service that you're going to at Christmas, you send them a text, give them a call. Hey, still the invitation's still open. No pressure. would love for you to join us. It can be that simple. Take some invite cards with you. Second thing that, you, um, that we're going to do starting next week, back by popular demand. Anyone remember we did this a couple years ago, Mug Your Neighbor? Anyone remember that? Some of you are like, I'm new here, and I'm really concerned about this church now, okay? What we did a couple years ago is we would package coffee mugs, and it have um, a Christmas look on it, and it's for those people you have in your life, your neighbors or coworkers or friends, like, I got to get them uh, just a small token that I appreciate them and love them, and so you can get a couple of those mugs, and inside is just a, a card and an invite card, and you just say, hey, love you, Merry Christmas, and hey, just so you know, if you don't have a place to go to church, we'd love for you to come to our church, and you just give them that mug. We saw, we saw people for months after Christmas continuing to respond to that that invitation. We're going to equip you with mugs and also you're going to get in the next couple months you'll have social media posts you can post and repost and like. You'll see emails you can forward on and the challenge is take advantage of all of it. Realize what God's called you to. But there's some things that you can do starting this week. Um, for starters, you'll find back at the guest services, also the information table, and in the resource center, you'll find some decals. There's one like this. It's, our, it's the Christmas brand. Maybe you put that on your computer or your phone. You can put that somewhere. It starts conversation. Hey, what's that? You can tell them about what's going on at your church. We have um, car decals. has information about our church. You know, we've had people that have said, I was sitting in a carpool line. I was bored out of my mind. And I was staring at this back windshield of this car in front of me, and I saw this decal, and I had nothing else to do, so I looked up the website, and I was like, oh, this looks like a church. I'm going to try it out. And they started coming to West Pines. What if in this season when people are actively looking for a church, they're like, you know what, I should take my family to church in this season. What if there was a blitz throughout South Florida of people seeing West an opportunity, a church that would love to have them at Christmas? Maybe you put this decal on your car. For some of you who are challenged like I am, there's information on how to not mess that up because I would probably mess that up. Next thing you can do this week um, in the Resource Center, we, are, we have shirts you can buy, $15. Looks like this. It's got a little Charlie Brown Christmas tree on it. Um, they asked me to wear this out and kind of model it for you, but I said, my muscles would be bulging through this shirt so much. It'd just be intimidating. You know, no one could live up to that. So, um, but you can get a shirt like this, $15, in the, in the, in the back lobby. Um, why? Because someone says, oh, I like your shirt. And then you say, oh, yeah, it's something my church is doing. And you're off into a conversation. And for some of you, it's going to take your fashion up a notch. So we care about your fashion too. Okay. And here's the last thing. Here's the last challenge for today. Okay, be ready for the invite cards, uh, the social media stuff, the mugs today. You've got the shirts, you've got, um, you've got decals, but here's the other thing. Um, can, can you, everyone in your bulletin, can you pull this out, the listening guide? It looks like this. Can you pull this out for a second? Everyone just take a second and pull this out. I want you to take a second. You'll see three lines at the bottom. And here's what I want to challenge every single person to do. Take, before you get out of your seat today, take a second and write three names down here that you know need to hear the message 
of God's love in this season and that you want to begin praying for. Write three names down before you leave today and begin praying for those. Put that, put that in a place where you can be praying for those people. And you say, man, all right, you're saying all this, but man, am I just marketing for my church? Is that what this is? Man, no, it's so much more than that. This is not just simply marketing. In fact, here's the thing. Some of you work like an hour away from here. You know, look, I could invite a coworker, but they live an hour away. Here's the thing. If that's your situation, we are just simply caring about them get the, getting the gospel. If you work a far distance like that away, email us and we'll se- we will send you information about churches in that community that you can invite them to. Because this is, this is what this is about. It's not just marketing your church. This is about people hearing the message of the gospel. It's about having a heart for the lostness for our city. I want you to hear how, as you're writing those names down, I just want you to take a second. I want you to hear how God describes Nineveh in in this passage. It's really profound. And at the end of chapter four, he says that Nineveh, that great city, and then he says, who doesn't know their right hand from their left. He says, they're that lost. They just don't know. They don't know that they feel so far from God. They feel like they've done so much to mess up in their life. They've got so much baggage in their past. They don't know that God simply loves them. They just don't know the message of the gospel. They think it's like, well, I go to church and I get this whole list of things I got to do to make God happy with me. No, turn to God just right where you're at. It's about finding this, the friction you feel with God, finding peace that God bought for you. He sent Jesus, the Son of God, to die on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice paying for our sins, paid for our sins so that we could be forgiven and washed clean. He's saying, I punished Jesus so there's no punishment left for you. It's a profound message, the gospel, the message of love and grace and compassion and long-suffering of God, his patience towards us. They just don't know. And we have a rare opportunity in the next couple weeks to urgently, aggressively invite people into our midst just so we can tell them that message. And their eternity may depend on it. You might be here this morning and maybe where you're at is you say, look, I I feel lost. I don't know where I'm at with God. I don't know what I feel about Jesus right now. I'm, I'm, I'm lost. I, I don't have it all figured out. I'm asking questions. Here's the one thing uh, that you can hear. Who God is and how he feels about you is stated right here in the book of Jonah. It's those who feel the farthest away from God. Here's how he looks at you. He's compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, He's patient, overflowing, steadfast, immovable love. He loves you. He's got his arms open. He says, just turn to me. Let me pour out my grace and forgiveness. Let me, let me guide your life. Just turn with me. Turn to me, he says. And you can turn to God this morning. You can take that step today. You can in just a simple prayer just say, God, I believe that you washed all my sins away by the death of Jesus. I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead so that I can one day when I die be in heaven for eternity. I, I just, I'm choosing to believe. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm choosing to believe that you want to extend forgiveness to me.
And if that's you, you can just accept that with a simple prayer. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If you want to take that step to simply turn to God this morning, then I just want to lead you in one simple prayer right there in your seats. Just say this, say, God, between you and God, just pray these words in your heart to God. God, thank you that you love me. You know I feel so far from you. But thank you that you have mercy and grace and forgiveness for me. I accept that. I accept that Jesus died for me. I choose to believe that. And I just, I I want you to guide my life. I'm turning to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.